So there was a woman who died a couple months ago. Her name was Susanna Jones, and her death was in the, it was in the news and received some coverage. Does anybody know why it was significant, her death, Susanna Jones? She died uh, May 12th, 2016. Anybody know? Uh, she was the oldest living person on Earth. She was the only American person born in the 1800s who was still alive. And she just died two months ago. She would have turned 117 this week. And uh, it's so it, it, pretty significant life. So we, it begs the question, how do you do it? Like, how do you live that long? And so they were, they, she had been interviewed a number of times. And so she, she didn't uh, drink or smoke. So that's good advice. Uh, she slept more than 10 hours a night. Imagine that. Extend your life 10 hours a night. And I wonder how many, how many years I've knocked off my life by you know, losing sleep. And uh, I think of some of you young parents, right? You know, 10 hours a night, my goodness. Uh, but she did love bacon. And she would eat, she admitted, she would eat four strips of bacon every day. So we're all going to enjoy getting at that and uh, see how that works out for us. Um, but it got me thinking, right, in her, in her lifetime, 116 years and, and, and change, 116 years, what changed in the world during that time? You know, how many things were different from the time that she was a baby from the, till, till today? And it, when she was a child, if you had shown her an iPhone or told her about the internet or all these, you know, satellite technology, she, you know, it would just... It would be so amazing, but even simple things, if you were to tell her, yeah, most homes in your neighborhood will have a refrigerator, and that, that'll just you know, run off electricity, and you'll have a horseless carriage that will, you, know, you could drive around. And just the simplest th things that we take for granted are just so different 116 years ago. Now think about this. 216 years ago, 316. Think about 2,700 years ago. And I mention that because this summer, we're starting today, we're going to be preaching through the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. These are texts that were written 2,700 years ago. How vastly different life would be, how much it would just not, somebody from that time couldn't even understand life today. Yet, we gather as a community, and we gather here on a Sunday, and we are studying these ancient texts together. And we believe, because they are the very word of God, that they are just as relevant today as they were 2,700 years ago. And that's pretty cool. So if your friends or your coworkers ask you about your church, and they say, what do you do at church? Or what are you guys focusing on? Say, we're studying these ancient, uh, sacred texts that we believe are, these are prophecies that are still relevant and real and changing lives even today and that's that's pretty cool i was at a, a gathering i was at a, a high school reunion last night actually and uh, i was talking to this one guy he said so you're a pastor now which blows their minds because because of high because of high school but but he said so you're a pastor. he said what are you going to preach tomorrow and i said oh you know i'm preaching from isaiah he said no no what are you going to preach in light of like everything that happened this week you know it's all the there's uh, violence and there's police violence and rioting and shooting. And I said, well, I, I, said, I said I'm studying this, you know, ancient text from 
2,700 years ago that I believe is still relevant today. And then I look at verse 17, which says, seek justice, defend the oppressed. And this is what, you know, justice and, and see, seeking to be reconciled to communities that are otherwise divided and, and oppressed is, I mean, this is, this is our world today. I mean, it's right, it just jumps out right there. I don't have to be cute. I don't have to make this stuff up every week. God's word speaks into our world today. So that's, so this is just great. But why Isaiah? And why spend the whole summer doing this? Well, first of all, I, what I want to do is unlock a part of the Bible for you. So there's 66 chapters in Isaiah, and it's just, it's just perfectly constructed, beautifully written, thought-provoking, very poetic language, very beautiful. And it, it's just going to, it's going to open all that up to you. Sometimes we don't read as much in the Old Testament because it seems uh, just we see, it seems out of touch or hard to understand, and I want to put it in its context so that we can understand it today. And we haven't preached through Isaiah as a church in, in a long time, not in the almost 14 years that I've been here. We just haven't preached through Isaiah, and we really it's really beautiful text, uh, really relevant. So I want to just unlock that. The new, Jesus quotes Isaiah all the time. The New Testament parts of the Bible that you might be more familiar with, just reference Isaiah over and over, so it really helps to understand it in context. But secondly, it's going to reveal God's heart to us. God's heart has not changed. God's attitude towards uh, sinful humanity and God's desire to extend love and grace to the world he created has not changed. And we're going to see God's heart to save his people and even... Isaiah's name means salvation is from the Lord. I mean, it's just, it's, it's right there. So we're going to see God's heart. And as we understand God's heart, the God who made you, you can understand the world in a new way, with a new dimension, and understand the fullness that God intends for his people. So we're going to see God's heart, but it's also going to point us to Jesus, our Savior. So Isaiah predicts the coming of the Messiah, who is both a conquering king in the family line of King David, but also a suffering servant. So sort of a different type of king. So we're going to see Jesus, the, his, his just, we're going to see the Messiah predicted and whispered and see the shadows of that. And because we know Jesus, it, it'll really come alive in a way for us that, that's good. So that's why we're doing this. But who was Isaiah? Because we're going to be talking about him a lot. We really don't know much. We don't know much about his life. We know when he lived. He prophesied for about 60 years. We know that he was in the southern kingdom of Judah. So Israel had a civil war and split into two kingdoms. So you have Israel uh, is the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom. He's primarily speaking God's word to the kings and the, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah. But other than that, other than that, he prophesied for a long time. We don't know a lot of specifics about him. And, but the nation he was in, we do know about. They were, the, the nation of Judah was doing pretty well. They were financially fairly stable. They, they had, they, it was fairly prosperous, but politically very unstable in the world. The Assyrian Empire is to the north and threatening and conquering all the nations to the north. And then you've got Egypt, who's another kind of superpower just to the south, and you're in between. And the question becomes, when you're pressured, and when you feel threatened, what do you turn to? Do you turn to the God who loves you, or do you turn to the nations around you? Do you look to the power, political power, and the power of the sword, 
or do you look to the power of the Lord? And that's, that's, we're going to see that play out as we look through these texts. So today, though, in this very first chapter, the theme of this first chapter is really going to be the theme of the whole work of Isaiah. It's a warning. It's very harsh language as you hear it read out loud. It sounds harsh, but it's a warning to the people because of their sin. But right with the reality of sin is also this promise of God's forgiveness and his salvation. And we see these things right next to each other. Sin and salvation, hand in hand, uh, needing to turn to God's grace. So is that a relevant message for you this morning? Well, if you're perfect, then this is not relevant to you. You can tune me out, you can doodle on the back of your uh, bulletin or text somebody. But if you're not perfect, and you know that you fall short, and you know that you need God's grace, this message is for you. So let's pray together as we explore it. Father God, we thank you for your word that it's just as relevant today as it ever was. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that we would know your heart, that we would know and experience your love and your grace as we look into these precious words, Lord. So give us wisdom, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. We commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. So really two parts here, uh, just a picture of how the people got it wrong and how they can get it right. So we'll look at those two things. First, how they got it wrong. Uh, there's a main accusation here. The accusation is that the people have rejected and rebelled against God. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 again. Listen for the words of, of rejection and rebellion. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is... A, a great accusation, but it shows God's heart. God's heart then is the same as God's heart now. He said, look, I've made all the heavens and the earth. That's why he can speak. Listen, heaven, listen, earth. I, he's made it all. And he's made us as his children, but we've rebelled against him. We have not followed his ways. We have, we have crossed boundaries that we should not cross. And it, it breaks God's heart. And it's interesting because people will say somehow that God's mind has changed or that God is different. You know, the God of the Old Testament is this God of wrath and judgment and the God of the New Testament is this God of love and grace. Well, that's just not true. God is revealing himself as a loving father. And God doesn't just put arbitrary boundaries in people's lives. He, he does it to, to show us how to that it might go well with us, that we might experience all of who he is and all that life has. But we rebel against his, his boundaries. And specifically, he gives a more specific accusation of what they got wrong here. But this, it's the same, it's always the same sin. It's, God, you're my heavenly father. You show me your way, but I'm going to do it my own way because I prefer that. It's putting ourselves in God's place. And one way they were doing that specifically, we see here in verses 11 through 15, 
I'm not going to read this whole thing, but, um, but he says, it's about their sacrifices and their offerings. He says in verse 11, I've had more than enough burnt offerings. Verse 12, it's meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. It's worthless assemblies. And he talks in verse 14 about new moon feasts and festivals. He said, I hate that. It's a burden to me. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. This is a very interesting accusation that's made against the people. Because they were offering sacrifices, they were offering prayers, they were celebrating festivals. These are all the things that God commanded them to do. And God says, I've had enough of it. So if we were to look at their lives and say, well, these look like really religious people. They look like very obedient people. They're doing all the things that God commanded them to do as, as his people. And he said, he said, I've had enough of this. It's detestable to me. Why? Because it had become empty. It's because they were doing all these rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices, and their hearts were far, far from God. And God cares much more about the heart than about any religious ceremony, any religious practice. Um, so it wasn't that these were bad practices. They just became hollow. They became empty and meaningless and worthless. God cares about the heart. The psalmist in Psalm 51, he said, uh, Lord, you don't rejoice in, in sacrifices, burnt offerings. The, the, the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's a heart that turns to God in faith, not, not just hands that perform religious ceremony. So, so I ask you this. Is this a problem for us today? You know, they had this whole system of law and ceremony and sacrifice to point them to the reality of sin, to their need for forgiveness, to experience and celebrate God's love. It became meaningless. Well, what about us? Maybe a better question is, why did they keep doing it? So you've got this, you've got this nation of people who have this law, and their heart is not in it. They're just going through the motions. Why would you keep doing that? Well, it's the same, it's, it's just a religious impulse that is really common across different faith traditions and even very primitive faith traditions. It's, look, this world is chaotic and unpredictable, and I want to do my religious duty just so that God is on my side. So that I'll do my obligation to God, so then God can be obligated to me to fulfill what I want from him. It's a very... It, now, we're more sophisticated than that. We're not just offering animal sacrifices and things, but we, it, for us, it looks more like morality. You know, I'm going to be obedient to God, and I'm going to do the, the right rituals, the right prayer in attending church, and then God will certainly owe me something. Now... I hope you can see how hard this is because I believe that attending church is a very good thing. I believe that prayer, we are commanded to prayer. In obedience, we should pray. But all these things are an extension of God's love to us. Ways that we can nurture and foster our communion with the God of the universe as his children, as his servants. Not that 
These are not ways to get him to work for us. And do you see how we have this tendency to turn it on its head? You know that it happens when you, when you compare yourself to the world around you and think, you know what, I'm pretty moral. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I've never killed anybody. And, and you look at your neighbors and say, they don't even go to church. And they're, you know, dishonest people. Certainly, God should be grateful to me for how good I've been and how religious I've been. But then we become angry when we don't get what we want, when our children aren't behaving the way that we thought they should, or when my business isn't flourishing the way that I wanted to, or when my health is failing. You know, why did God do that to me? Because I did all my thing for him. But you can see how that's a dangerous place to be. God does not work for us. God knows what is right. And we don't control God. It, that's why God can say, you know, a donkey knows who its master is. It, it's, a, it's just a very interesting way to put it. it. We try to put ourselves in the place where only God belongs. And it's easy to substitute just religious behavior, religious ritual for true faith. So, what's the, so what does true faith look like? It's a good question. So Isaiah shows us. Look at verse 17. This is true faith. He says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The spiritual practices we do are good, and they, but they need to overflow from us. So as you pray, as you read your Bible, as we gather as a church family together here, this needs to flow from this place to the world around us, to our neighbors. It needs to flow especially to our most marginalized neighbors here specifically, those who need justice, the oppressed, fatherless, and widows. This is... When it doesn't, so here we have God's people in the nation of Judah many, many years ago. It wasn't flowing, these practices weren't flowing from their time at the temple or at this festival to the world around them. And we need to watch out that our kind of spiritual time doesn't, that it, we've got to be careful it doesn't stop here. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer. He said the first and the greatest and the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And he said the second greatest commandment is just like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to love God with all your heart and that is going to flow to your neighbor around you. Jesus said all of the law and all of the prophets hang on those two things. He said all of the law, all of the ceremony, all of the sacrifices, all of the Sabbaths, all of these things that the people were supposed to do hangs on a love of God and a love of neighbor. He said all of the prophecies, all of the warnings in scripture, all of the, the words that God spoke through his prophets hang on love of God and, and the love of neighbors around. Again, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the more famous, famous passages of the Bible, it's the famous love passage. Love is patient, love is kind. Love. It starts by saying, look, you can do all these spiritual things. You could, uh, you could speak in, in different languages. You could give your very life. You could have wisdom, spiritual wisdom. But if you don't have love, then it's nothing. It's just noise. It's, it's just a, a clanging sound. 
That without love, any of these things that are otherwise good practices and helpful practices, but without love they become hollow, they become empty. And what is the fruit, what is the outcome of a spiritual life? Scripture doesn't teach, oh, the, the fruit of the, the Spirit is daily Bible study and perfect church attendance and you know, serving at a, at the, you know, in a ministry. It's, no, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control or some order of that. But that's relational language. The fruit of, of a life that is filled with God's Spirit is... is is seen in, in love for others and joy in life and a peace and patience. These are things that you can't just do as a religious practice. It's, it's an overflow of God's love and his power extending beyond ourselves. You can be very religious and be very self-centered. It's much harder to live a life of compassion and self-denial and integrity without in some way having experienced the love of God. And notice where it gets lived out, and I love this part of this. The accusation against the people is that there, it was when they gathered for festivals and for Sabbaths and for worship and, and offering these sacrifices, where should they be living it out? It's out beyond that. It's out in, the, in their world to those who are in need, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, the oppressed. The real problem here is a, what we call a sacred-secular divide, which is that there are sacred and religious and spiritual things, and then there's everything else in life that isn't sacred. It's not spiritual. It's just, it's just secular, normal life, and there's this divide. That, God did not create that divide. We create that divide. We're the ones who have said there's certain things that are spiritual and certain things that are not. But God intended us to experience him and worship him and serve him as we gather as a church, but also as we scatter in the world around us. And in fact, he said, the measure of your faith is seeing how you live it out in the everyday of life, in your place of work, in your neighborhood, whoever, whatever neighbor God puts in front of you. That's true worship. That's real worship. So I'll say it like this. You don't go to church. You are the church. We are, we are God's people wherever we are. It's not something that we do. It's something that we are. And if, it, if, if this gathering, if we do church like this, and this, becomes, this just becomes an empty ritual after we, then we have missed it. This is supposed to be a celebration, a party. We gather and we sing of God's goodness and we sing of his grace and we encourage one another. We pray for one another and we search God's word and try to know his heart and his love and feast on it so that we can take it with us as we go to empower us in our everyday. And we take a good news message. I love the word gospel. The word gospel means good news. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have that message, and we take it to the world around us, and this is a world that needs hope. So bad. Our world needs hope, needs the good news of Jesus. And we are a good news people, and we, take, we celebrate here, and we go, and we take it with us. Even in the most humble act, 
you can extend God's love and grace to the world around us. And, and God said, you can turn to that, and here's how it's possible. We've got to set the record straight. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Now, there's other translations you might be familiar with. says, Come now, let us reason together. But it's, this is a really good translation because from the Hebrew, because it's very legal language. God is saying, hey, we need to settle the accounts here. I've just accused you of guilt, and your hands are covered in blood. You're guilty of rebelling against me, but come, let's, uh, let's settle this matter in a legal sense. Look at verse 18. He says, um, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is the truth of, it's the truth of sin, but it's the truth of God's grace right there with it. He said, you're guilty, but even though you're stained with blood and you're clearly guilty, you will be made pure and forgiven. And that is how God works. That's how God worked 2,700 years ago. That's how God worked today. And we know that's how God works because of Jesus. We stand before a holy God who created everything. And we stand there guilty as people who rebelled against him. And our hands are covered in blood. So here's a loving father but a righteous judge and we are clearly guilty. And standing next to us is a perfect lamb. A spotless, beautiful, pure, innocent lamb. And us with our hands full of blood. Yet it's the lamb that steps forward. And Jesus is the perfect lamb. And he takes the nails in his hands, and his hands are full of blood for us. He's the one who, take, who gets the wrath and the punishment of the holy God for us. And God says, you want to settle this matter? This is how we settle it. The innocent lamb gets the blood in his hands. He gets the crimson. His hands are scarlet. And God is satisfied to look at that and see the blood in his hands and look at us and see us covered with his wool. With a blanket of snow, of being cleansed and being pure and his perfection covers us. And God says, that's how I settle the matter. It's just a beautiful description of it. And I wish the, the folks of, of Isaiah's day could have known Jesus if they could have seen what he accomplished on the cross, if they had seen the risen Jesus with the wounds in his hands, their hands covered in blood, but now he, him taking it on himself, how they would have praised the Lord and how we should praise the Lord, that Jesus did that for us. That's how this is all possible. So what do we do with this? Tomorrow. Okay, you're going to get up tomorrow, whatever you're doing, this time tomorrow. What does this mean for you? The first thing is this. Whatever, whatever you do to grow in your spiritual life, and we should be pursuing a life of prayer and immersing ourselves in, in the Bible and God's Word and reading it uh, even every day and gathering together. Whenever we do those things, if you ever feel like that's your way of earning something from God or getting him to work for you, you need to repent of that. You need to turn from that and say, God, please forgive me. I'm, I'm your child. I'm your servant. I, you don't work for me. That's not how God set the world up. And God can forgive you for that. 
And whatever comes your way, trusting in his goodness and trusting in his love. The other thing you can do is you can bring that with you. You bring it with you to, to work, or you bring it with you to your neighborhood or into your family. You bring this love that God has given you, his desire for you to be his child. You bring that good news with you, and you can be an agent of that. We bring this celebration of gathering together and, and celebrating, uh, as, you know, we baptize these children today, celebrating life. And we, we bring that celebration to the world around us. And we know that our world needs hope. And especially we keep our eyes out for those, for individuals and groups of people who are oppressed, who need justice. Those without fathers, those who are widows. Anybody in need, but especially those. And you can even pray. You can get up in the morning and pray, Lord, show me one person who needs, who, who's just oppressed. Whether it's in a, in a, for whatever reason. Lord, show me somebody who needs love today and help me to know how to show them love. And you can pray that way to bring this with you. The other thing you can do tomorrow is you can start reading the prophet Isaiah. So we're going to spend 10 weeks on this. And there's, 66 chapters, so if you read maybe a chapter of Isaiah every day, you'll track pretty close for the duration of the series. The math almost works on that. So uh, over the next 10 weeks, just start reading. Start with chapter 1 tomorrow and consider God's heart. Where, what is God's heart in this, and, and where am I at? And what do I need to turn from? What sin do I need to turn from, and how can I receive God's grace? But because of Jesus, there does not need to be any sacred secular divide we can experience him and live as god's people in our everyday amen